This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today, the Law Review looks at elder abuse. Estimates of the amount of elder abuse are staggering. Some even describe it as an epidemic. In fact, the government describes it as an epidemic. So today, we have two experts to help us understand the law and elder abuse. Joel Bryant is an attorney in the law firm of Green, Bryant, and French in San Diego, and Paul Greenwood is a deputy district attorney in San Diego. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Law Review. What would be the most dramatic forms of of abuse uh, that you have seen? Well, from a criminal perspective, uh, unfortunately, I see all kinds, and Shocking uh, to the extreme. For example, this afternoon, uh, after we finish this broadcast, I'm going to be arraigning a daughter who has been already bound over on a preliminary hearing in San Diego courts on a charge of murder, of murdering her 78-year-old mother. And unfortunately, homicides of older adults who are mothers or fathers by their own children is not that uncommon. So we see that extreme. Uh, I've had other physical cases of kidnap, of carjackings of elderly people who have been befriended by a salesman or a tradesman. Uh, In one of my cases, uh, he kept her captive in the trunk of her own car for over 25 hours while he drove her car around and stole from her purse and credit card. And then the other extreme is obviously scams that we all know about, and we hear about sweepstakes scams by perpetrators who typically remain anonymous under the shield of the internet or phone. And then you get the extreme of uh, severe neglect cases, which often uh, Joel might be involved in too from a civil perspective, where you have very serious bed sores or pressure ulcers found on an older adult who is supposed to be taken care of by a caregiver. What a huge range of problems you just described. I mean, from physical abuse to to the point of murder, uh, neglect, and essentially financial fraud of of that. So, Joel, do you see the same kinds of uh, issues in in your practice, which is primarily civil law as opposed to criminal law? Yes, it is civil, and we do see similar conduct. A couple of instances that stand out uh, from a civil lawsuit perspective, in the nursing home setting, it's, um, I've had clients Elderly clients, vulnerable clients couldn't move themselves who were in a nursing home. The family had trusted with their care, and the people at the nursing home didn't turn them regularly, didn't provide them adequate nutrition, did not provide them with specialty air mattresses. So as a result, in one particular situation, my client developed bed sores on his tailbone that were, he had a couple of them about the size of a pie plate. Bed sore is an open wound that, in this case, became stage four before they ever notified. What, what stage four is a severity? Yes, yeah, stage four is severity. There's four stages, four being the worst. And stage four typically is a bed sore. It's an open wound that goes all the way down to the bone. And oh, so in this goodness. situation, the pictures were, were horrible. And again, if someone was providing care to that person, it's not something that happens overnight. It happens over the course of time. And this would have been visible to any nurse or nurse assistant or director of nursing who was providing care. So it told us very quickly, they are collecting the family's money, but they're providing no care. And bed sores, when they get that big, that's an open wound, they easily get infected, which is what happened he became septic and their father died as a result of these stage four pressure ulcers. And so the fact that you're in the civil side of the law primarily suggests that you would or someone would have been seeking 
damages for, for that? Yes, civilly, the remedy is, is money. And you can also recover attorney's fees where you prove elder abuse. So we were seeking in that case, because it was such shocking and egregious conduct, we were seeking money for additional medical bills incurred as a result of the neglect, um, punitive damages, attorney's fees, and uh, compensation for loss of enjoyment of life. So civilly, the focus is on money. That's how the system's set up. Well, let's, let's take the two areas of the law that, that you have, the two of you have described and talk about each one maybe separately. I should say that I assume there's a third one, which is a regulatory side uh, in which the license to operate a facility, for example, could be, or, or the loss of a professional license to practice if someone involved with that, could be implicated in this too. And uh, I'm going to pretend that's in the civil side, even though it's really not. So let's talk about the criminal law. Paul, you started talking about a case involving murder. Uh, so murder is murder, whether it's an elderly person or not. That implies that there are lots of laws that would be of general a- applicability that would also be relevant to elder abuse. Are there laws, criminal laws, that are specifically targeted toward uh, elder abuse? In California, uh, and in most states, uh, there is typically uh, a law uh, relating to the crime of what I call elder abuse. Now, in other states, they may term it differently. So if somebody was listening to this broadcast and Googled uh, a statute in, in a, another state, they may not find it under, quote, elder abuse. They would find it under what is called vulnerable adult abuse, which has a very more actually complicated definition than the one we use in California for the crime of elder abuse, which for anyone who, who wants to look it up, it's called California Penal Code Section 368. It is uh, defined as an elder, it's anyone over the age of 65. And we also, in that same code, we have abuse against a dependent adult aged 18 through 64, who is considered to be dependent because of physical or mental disabilities. And that crime of elder abuse covers its own subcomponents, which would be physical abuse, physical neglect, uh, financial exploitation, false imprisonment, abandonment, and even to the point of mental or emotional abuse. So any of those sort of behaviors, uh, if they were proved beyond a reasonable doubt, could qualify to be charged under this Penal Code Section 368. And in the criminal law, generally we we divide things into serious offenses that are felonies and less serious offenses that are misdemeanors. Are the offenses you've described felonies or misdemeanors? They are both. And this is the sort of the burden upon the prosecutor, like myself, to evaluate a case that comes in from a police department. And I look at it and say, okay, is this felony conduct or is this misdemeanor conduct? And the general rule of thumb is, did the conduct by the perpetrator place the uh, victim in a situation that was likely to cause some kind of serious bodily injury? And and, and the Stress is unlikely to cause. I could have a case, Dean, where uh, there's no actual injuries caused to the victim through a miracle, through luck, or through whatever, and yet the circumstances in which the defendant placed the victim were, I could argue successfully in court, were likely to cause great bodily injury. So that would be felonious conduct. There are other situations where you would think, no, the conduct, even though it's criminal, doesn't rise to that level, and so we would charge it as a mistake. And this, we're getting into the tall weeds of criminal procedure maybe a little bit, but could, could someone be charged 
both with general offense murder and with elder abuse for the same activity? Yes, they can. And and very often that is my role to look for other offenses in addition to elder abuse. Probably murder is an extreme condition because I I don't want to give a jury an option to convict of a lesser charge when I'm saying it's it's murder or nothing. But, for example, in a financial exploitation case, an elderly widow, 85 years of age, uh, a fellow tradesman comes in uh, to her home to get her to sign a cheque. Uh, for roofing work that he says he's done. We, we can prove that the roofing work was bogus. He didn't do any work. He ripped, basically he ripped her off. So I'll charge him with felony elder financial abuse uh, if the amount that he stole is over $950 because that's also what we did determine by whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor. But in addition, I would charge him with residential burglary because he entered the widow's home with the intent to rip her off. And so it is absolutely appropriate and just one other thing, which is slightly technical, uh, there, are, there are times when it's very advantageous to charge multiple offenses because some offenses are considered serious offenses, like a strike under California law, and an elder abuse statute right now is not. Okay. So there are a lot of criminal laws that apply, the general criminal laws as well as specialty uh, laws, and they can be multiple charges for the same action. So then let's turn to the civil law and ask the follow is, is is it possible if there's been a criminal conviction for there also to be civil liability for exactly the same thing yes absolutely the civil law is found in a <clears throat> in the welfare and institutions code under an act which we call edacpa which is short for elder abuse dependent adult civil protection act so the same conduct that constitutes and gives rise to criminal liability certainly gives rise to civil liability. The standard for civil is less, so anything that gives rise to criminal necessarily gives rise to civil liability. The the standard meaning what you have to prove in order to succeed with your case. So a criminal uh, prosecutor would normally have to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. You would, uh, in a civil case, be talking more of a preponderance, uh, which is a much lower level of proof. Yes, preponderance, and with respect to the nursing home neglect cases to receive the elder abuse remedies, we have to prove uh, by clear and convincing evidence, which is a higher standard than preponderance of the evidence, but lower than beyond a reasonable doubt. So the normal malpractice rules or the normal negligence rules would also cover a lot of the abuse, I assume. For example, the nursing home case that you talked about, that to me it sounds like that would be negligence under anyone's definition of it at best. Right. At, at a minimum, it would be negligent. The, the long and short on the elder abuse laws is that prior to the elder abuse laws, take the case I described gentleman gets a stage four pressure ulcer, then dies as a result. In California, if we ignore the elder abuse laws, that the family of that gentleman cannot recover for any of his pain and suffering or loss of enjoyment of life. Because the general law in California is if you, if the plaintiff dies before judgment is entered, you cannot recover pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment of life. And in these kind of cases with an elderly person who is not working, much of the damages are the loss of enjoyment of life. So prior to enactment of the Elder Abuse Civil Protection Act, a lot of these cases didn't get brought civilly because they were not economically viable. So it is to say the damages would have been so low. Yes, absolutely. So the civil, the elder DACPA, I'll call it, came along and said, well, if you can prove elder abuse by clear and convincing evidence, we will allow the family to recover for loss of enjoyment of life, and we will allow the family to recover attorney's fees which in these hard-fought cases are substantial. The net result is civil 
what I like to call nursing home neglect cases are now economically viable due to the Elder Abuse Independent Adult Civil Protection Act. And let me ask you another question, which is related to the malpractice. In many states, uh, we're in California, so it includes California, there are caps on certain kind of economic damages. Are there the same kind of caps in uh, elder abuse cases? In short, there can be. Uh, it depends if you're suing a skilled nursing facility, which is deemed to be a health care provider, just like a doctor or hospital, or you're suing a residential care facility, which in California is not a licensed health care provider. So it is possible that some, uh, some caps may apply to your civil elder abuse case. It just depends on the particular case. For example, elder abuse, uh, pain and suffering might be capped, but the damages on a wrongful death cause of action might not be capped. You used as your example horrible uh, neglect case. What other kinds of, of cases are there civil damages common? One other example I would give you in the financial elder abuse, yeah. which we handle civilly as well, a couple of cases which were particularly disheartening involved a situation, dad died, a couple of years later, son needs money, goes to mom, says, hey, mom, I need to sign this form uh, so it'll help me for income tax purposes. As it turns out, the son had his mother sign over a deed. So son obtains title to mom's property, and then six months later says, mom, you've got to start paying me rent. Mom's like, pay you rent? This is a home we've lived in our whole lives and we bought. And then in two instances within the same year, I had two different sons file eviction proceedings against his own mother from his own home. So those are very disturbing kind of cases I see on the financial exploitation. So that sounds like what Paul was describing as a crime, but is in what way is it a civil case? Those cases, and I can't really speak... Uh, I'll let Paul address this, but my, from my perspective, a lot of the family relative financial elder abuse cases are tough to prosecute criminally because there is so much gray area. Of course, the defendant, in this case the son, will say, oh, well, no mom wanted to give it to me as a gift. Can you, I mean, is there a civil remedy? The civil remedy is, again, it's money damages. In that case, we can recover, in this case, the value of the house, attorney's fees, and any damages for humiliation, emotional distress that you can imagine an elderly woman being kicked out of her own house. But she's suffer. having to sue her son. Yes. I mean, or is there, are there financial institutions that might be liable? Absolutely. And there are those cases, too, in financial institutions. Um, I've had stockbroker cases, financial planner cases. Those cases are where they... And that's because they're participating in it or knowingly participating, or what's it require? They are knowingly selling the elder an unsuitable uh, investment product, like an annuity. Like I've had cases, they sell an elder an annuity that they can't surrender, they can't access for 10 years, and the elder has five years to live. So it's a totally inappropriate financial product designed for one person's sole benefit, the financial planner. And what Joel has just described, those two different situations with annuities or with the son taking advantage of his mother, uh, typically, unfortunately, if, if a police officer hears those, the eyes will glaze over and say, Oh, that sounds like a civil matter to me. So the, the benefit of having prosecutors who are skilled in this area, who experience in this area, is to say, well, wait a moment, let's delve into this. Let's look at the mother's mental capacity at the time she was given this document to sign. And let's look at the appropriate nature of this investment. Uh, is there any way that we can uh, produce evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that will convince a jury 
that this is, indeed is, is, is theft by taking advantage of, of that person's condition. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the criminal activity related to financial fraud. Is almost any scam on the would involve the elderly, potentially criminal, as well as civil liability? What, you, what you're looking for is uh, basically a, a fraudulent statement that, that I can prove is clearly a deception in order to make the victim part with their money. And nine times out of ten, it's pretty obvious and easy to prove that. The challenge for law enforcement and for prosecutors with these scams, and I'm talking about sweepstakes scams from overseas, the bogus checks that arrive in the mail, the grandson who calls from jail saying, bail me out, grandma. Those classic scams are being perpetrated by anonymous suspects uh, who are typically either out of the country, very hard to track because they purchase cell phones off the shelf from Walmart with no uh, line where you can trace it. Uh, very difficult to identify these people. And, and, and typically those cases hardly even get reported on criminal crimes by police officers. So we never get a statistic as to how many victims are out there. Secondly, Dean, and this is a major issue for me, is that victims, once they know they've been scammed, very rarely report it to the police because they're too embarrassed to do so. Because I come across that a lot because I typically get a notice of these scams not from the victim, but from the victim's neighbor or son or daughter who has uncovered it. And then you contact the victim and they don't want to talk about it? They, they're very reticent to talk about it because in the times that I get them to talk, their most, the number one concern is, Mr. Greenwood, are you going to tell my other friends or my other children because I'm afraid that they're going to put me in a nursing home? Sure. And I, I have so many victims who are willing to sort of forego 50000 to $100,000 of their own money rather than allow their own family to find out, which makes me in my own world of prosecutorial uh, duties want to reach out to the adult sons and daughters, or in the case of your listeners, to the adult grandsons and granddaughters. We may have law students listening to this uh, podcast who has a 75 to 85-year-old grandmother living alone. I'm urging these law students, you need to be staying in touch with your grandparents. You need to be finding out, are they getting calls uh, from these folks? Are they, are they getting letters telling them they've won money? Because we've constantly got to be uh, making sure that they don't part with their money. When I should say before this question that our guests today on the Law Review are Attorney Joel Bryant and Paul Greenwood, the Deputy District Attorney in San Diego, obviously both great experts on elder abuse. Do you see charitable scams? Yes. Because Nancy Spector, when she was on uh, a couple months ago, specifically said there's a problem with with that. There is twofold. The the clear fraudulent charitable scams where there is a bogus charity set up. And unfortunately, I have to tell you, there's a current case I'm prosecuting where the defendant managed to deceive the IRS into creating... What is it called? A 501? C3? C3. Yeah. Charitable status. So he gets this charitable name with a beautiful sounding name that, that convinces elders that everything is on the up and up. 
and as a result convinces them to give him massive donations, which he's just pocketing. Uh, so there's that kind of easy, bogus charity to prosecute. The other one, which is the legitimate charity, but where, for example, I've had situations where the victim has given their credit card number to a charity for one-off donation. And guess what happens? They keep withdrawing on, on a regular basis. And their argument is, well, she gave us permission to do that. Right. And, and when you've got elderly people who, who are maybe in the early stages of dementia or Alzheimer's, they are very vulnerable to this kind of exploitation. Well, it, there's a, the range that I've been talking about continues to amaze me. I started the program by saying it's an epidemic, given the different kinds of abuse combined. Is that too overstated, epidemic? I don't think so. Um, I, I think, in fact, the phrase that we always use is we are only seeing, from a civil and a criminal perspective, the tip of the iceberg. And I always tell law students, if you want to have job security, you either need to prosecute elder abuse in the next 10, 20, 30 years or go into Joel's arena of civil litigation of elder abuse because there is going to be so much out there in the coming years. And there already is. And why is that, people ask? It's because older adults have the money. And they have the money and the number of older adults is increasing uh, and will increase demographically. It is going to happen. So it makes sense that it would be, a, a, unfortunately, a growth, growth industry. Another technical issue, both of you have referred to state laws and California laws and so forth. You haven't talked, we haven't talked much about federal law. Is this primarily a state issue? Yes, civilly it is a, a state issue. Um, I've been in federal court on financial elder abuse cases and the body of law relied upon is is that found in the state law. Again, a DACPA, we also call it the Elder Abuse Act. But that's Act. a state It law. is state, yes. And uh, would vary in, we're in California, if we went to Arizona, there would be a different series of laws. Yes, it, and as Paul said earlier, most states do have their own elder abuse laws, some very similar to California, but there's always some different nuances. But all the states, I think, realize that the elders need protection in both the civil and criminal arena. And by and large, you, uh, Paul, you also see this as a state matter. I mean, you're a state officer, so it's natural Correct. you would primarily be interested. We've given some examples where there might be mail fraud that would be a federal offense uh, or a securities fraud, theoretically. But you, you're saying as well that most of the, the criminal activity involving uh, elder abuse is state it is state prosecuted, uh, typically by the county prosecutor's office or the district attorney's office, as we call it, or sometimes by the state attorney general. Uh, uh, in a smaller state, it's often the state attorney general who will take all the elder abuse cases because the smaller district attorney's office don't handle that expertise. Um, very, very few elder, elder abuse components are prosecuted federally. It has to be something exceptional, like a, almost like a class action, I'll call it, where you have a multiple victims in a, a complex investment scheme, or you have criminal activity uh, running over several states with multiple victims. And fortunately, some of these um, internet scams that I refer to are now being successfully uh, investigated, but where you've got a major base of multiple victims that the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office will be interested in pursuing. But one final point, uh, I've been prosecuting these crimes now for the last 18 years. In the last four years, um, uh, there has been one federal legislation, and it's called the Elder Justice Act, and it was passed uh, in the Health Care Act. And it took up 
how many pages of that massive legislation. Well, finally, um, there is some talk, and, and I just attended a, a convention here in San Diego where the Assistant Secretary of Aging, a cabinet position, Kathy Greenlee, spoke with me and with others. And the president has earmarked $25 million to be given federally amongst all the states for the awareness and training of, of local folks to, to become more aware and proficient in preventing elder abuse. So that is a, an encouraging sign from the federal level. Well, let's talk about what I would call preventive law for a moment. So how do people protect themselves and their families from elder abuse? From a civil perspective, um, the family, it's mostly to be vigilant, be alert, be, stay involved in your parents' lives, your grandparents' lives. Um, you need to see what's going on, what they're doing with their money, take a look at their accounts, make sure people's names aren't all of a sudden showing up on their bank accounts. You look for a change in conduct. Often when something's happened, they might not be acting, they, they may feel humiliated and embarrassed, but like Paul said, they don't want to tell anyone. So these are signs where they're acting differently. They're being, um, I've seen cases where we had a gardener who turned the elder against his own family so he would trust her. She kept telling the elder gentleman, your family's going to put you in a nursing home. I'm the only one that you, that, that you can trust. I've got your best interest in mind. And as a result, ended up obtaining a couple hundred thousand dollars from this elderly gentleman. And initially the family's like, boy, why is dad so mad at us? We always come over on Sundays for dinner and now he's angry and we can't figure it out. And, and the reason there, you need to pry a little further. Don't just shrug it off investigate further, take the time, be an investigator. That's the best advice I can give to, in order to try to prevent financial elder abuse. And from a criminal perspective, I spent a, actually a good proportion of my time going out to communities uh, where there are elders. And, and from a practical point of view, from the cases that I've prosecuted, uh, I talk about, number one, choose a caregiver with great caution because, unfortunately, we don't have laws protecting the public uh, that prevent felons from becoming caregivers to elders. It happens all the time. Uh, secondly, lock up your jewelry. Jewelry is the number one item that is stolen from older adults in San Diego County, and it's happening all over the country. And uh, I always tell elderly people, lock your jewelry box up, keep an inventory of it. And then I always talk about mailbox theft. Uh, uh, these crooks target mailboxes and a lot of elders, uh, older people who are shut in or housebound, they put their outgoing mail in the, in the mailbox to be collected by the mailman. That gets stolen by the, by the crook who's driving around. So there's lots of different practical things that, that are based upon cases I prosecuted that, that people can be educated about and can do as prevention methods. And the second part of the prevention is if, if something you think is happening, you suspect something is wrong, you heard this podcast, where would people call or what would they, what should they do? Well, most states have county agencies called adult protective services. I always tell people, call adult protective services if your gut feeling is telling you whether a family member or a neighbor that something is wrong. And in most cases, unless you are what is called a mandated reporter, in most cases, you can remain anonymous. So just make that call to your local adult protective services. Let them go out on an unannounced visit, and hopefully they'll be uh, trained well enough to recognize if it is criminal, and then they can cross-report to local law enforcement. And then civilly, I, I would say, if you have doubts um, in a nursing home setting, for example, there are county agencies known as ombudsmen. There are regulatory agencies for skilled nursing, Department of Public Health, 
for Residential Care Facilities Department of Social Services, you can report to them um, and they can launch an investigation. But what I will say is if I, I would tell families, do not be discouraged and do not uh, accept what these investigations reveal. I, I, at this point, do not have a high opinion of uh, the regulatory agencies in California on elder abuse. Basically, the regulatory enforcement has been left to civil lawyers because there's egregious circumstances going out there. The regulatory agencies are going in, looking the other way, telling the family uh, there's nothing wrong here. I would tell families, don't accept that. If that happens and you don't accept it, contact a, a civil elder law litigation attorney and he or she can look into it and do a full investigation, get medical records, get medical professionals to review the records and look into the case. Well, thank you very much. Just the answer to this last question suggests to me that we need to invite you to come back and do another portion of this on, on reporting on regulatory issues and on the, on the future. This has been an eye-opening conversation, if a little depressing, I must say, because it, it is particularly terrible to think uh, the, the degree to which the most among the most vulnerable in our society are really being taken advantage of, and I, I'm I'm glad there are people who care deeply about this in in our profession that that work on it all the time. So, if anybody our listeners wanted to reach you, how would they how would they reach you, Joel? The best way to reach me would be uh, via phone six one nine two three nine seven nine zero zero extension one one three or email, which is J Bryant at gbflawyers.com. That's J-B-R-Y-A-N-T at gbflawyers.com. And we'll post this on the, the, the Podbean website. And uh, my direct number is 619-531-3464. And my email address is paul, P-A-U-L dot Greenwood, just as it sounds, at S-D, which is San Diego, C-D-A, which is County District Attorney dot org. Thank you very much, both of you, for being with us on uh, Law Review today. Joel Bryant, an attorney in the law firm of Green, Bryant, and French in San Diego, and Paul Greenwood, the deputy district attorney in San Diego. I'm very grateful for your insights. The views expressed on Law Review are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the California Western School of Law. Thanks also to our producers, Jinhee Park, Annie Shaikh Validian and Katrina Julian. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so send us a message on lawreview.podbean.com. And until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.